Thanks for joining us in our ongoing efforts to bring you leadership perspectives on the top issues at the 2021 Michigan Policy Conference. I'm joined today by Ellen Alberdeen, president of the Joyce Foundation, a private nonpartisan foundation that invests in advancing evidence-based policies and strategies to address racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Michigan is one of six states where Joyce focuses its grant making. It is a member of the Michigan Council of Foundations and has invested nearly $9 million in the state between 2018 and 2020. This year, Joyce is supporting Michigan partners in strengthening water accessibility and protections, supporting the new Independent Redistricting Commission, and helping municipalities figure out how to wisely spend federal stimulus dollars. As head of the foundation, Ellen is active in both the regional and national policy arenas. She is a founder of the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities, a collaborative investing in community-based efforts to reduce gun violence in Chicago. And she serves on numerous boards, including Loyola University Chicago and the Chicago Public Education Fund. Thank you, Jim. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, and we really appreciate Crane's thoughtful coverage of important issues across our region. And just as a way of introduction, I understand that most listeners really want to know, how do you get money out of the Joyce Foundation? Our website is www.joycefdn.org, and we try to be incredibly responsive to folks when they reach out to us. That's great. Yes, and uh, that would have been question probably number one. Let's turn to the uh, the policy conference. The focus of this year's conference centers around reimagining a healthy Michigan. It's a pretty broad aspiration that I'm sure you agree would apply throughout the region. One of the pillars underpinning that vision is advancing racial equity for all. And given all we've been through in the last year, where do you think we are now in the march toward racial equity? And where do we need to go uh, next as a region? And, and can you point to programs that are working? Jim, one thing I want to lead with is saying that Michigan has a ton of really fantastic assets. And that's why we like to work in Michigan. There's a great education system. There's a trained workforce. There's a lot of philanthropy in Michigan. There's business and community leadership. And all of those are reasons that an organization based in Chicago can come into a state like Michigan and find really strong partners and leadership that's local and based on the ground, which is a really important factor, I think. You know, we're humble about what we can accomplish in locations that are away from our home location in Chicago. I know we're going to focus on challenges for Michigan, but I want to open by saying Michigan is a really, really fantastic well-endowed state in so many ways. And I find it to be one of the most beautiful states that I've ever been in. So for all those reasons, we really like working in, in Michigan. But to get to your question, yeah, the, the pandemic and the George Floyd murder brought to the fore the persistent structural barriers to progress that are facing communities of color, barriers that our foundation certainly has been aware of and working to address for decades. We did incorporate and formalize our focus on racial equity in 2018, but we have always functioned with the belief that communities are better and stronger when society's benefits are equally shared. Back in 2018, to better understand our region and try to make some projections about where we ought to be spending our money, one of the things that we did was commission a study of the Great Lakes we worked with the Urban Institute, which is based in Washington, D.C. 
one of the things that we found when we looked at the demographics of our states in general, but certainly in, in Michigan, that the population is growing more slowly in the Great Lakes states and in Michigan. That's not a huge surprise. We're older than other regions of the country and whiter than other regions of the country. But every year, Michigan becomes more racially diverse. And certainly um, that projection was proven out when we looked at the recent released 2020 census. What does that lead us to believe and understand? In part, it's the young people who are being born now, who are more diverse, who are going to be the, you know, a really important factor in all of the successes of Michigan going forward. So we need to think about that as it relates to our education system, our workforce systems, our environmental focus, and so on and so forth. It's the young people being born right now in Michigan who really are the future of the state. And they are a more diverse set of folks than the older generations currently in the state. And again, I don't wanna focus only on the negatives, but it is also true that Michigan has struggled more than many other states from the loss of good paying manufacturing jobs. The auto industry, uh, automation and globalization in general has had a big impact obviously in the Detroit area and all of the supply chain that devolves from the auto industry. And when you've got you know, essentially a single industry state, that's a problem when that industry kind of takes a big dive. A lot of the new jobs that are being created, you know, there are many good uh, jobs in the green economy, but um, a lot of new jobs, gig jobs in particular, just don't pay as well as old jobs. They don't have the benefits. They're less secure. So there's, you know, there are concerns that we and others have about this growing gig economy that is certainly a part of Michigan's economy. Right. I, I mentioned earlier that baby boomers are aging out of the workforce and young people of color are leading the population growth. That's a really critical thing to understand as we're thinking about policy, certainly from from our perspective, but I know the leadership in the state is keenly aware of, of that issue. One of the things that we really value in Michigan, and we look for this when we're choosing where to operate, and I mentioned the very strong leadership that you have in, in government and in business and so on, but there are so many amazing philanthropies that are based in and rooted in, in Michigan. So we've got the Herb Foundation, Ford Foundation does a ton. They're not based in, in Michigan, but they do a ton in Michigan. Kresge, Mott, Hudson Weber, and Weggie. Those are foundations that we have great relationships with. We respect tremendously and really enjoy taking their lead on many issues. And sometimes they come to us as well, but mostly we really enjoy partnering with them. And I think it makes for a stronger philanthropic community than many other states enjoy. Ellen, in discussions I've had with community leaders, one fear is that over time, the progress we've made a year ago when racial equity was brought to the forefront would slip back into complacency on the issue. Do you share that fear? And what does true sustainable change look like? I, I understand the fear, but I don't think we are going to move backwards. I, I think that the changes that we've seen in the last 18 months to two years, the amount of you know tearing back the the veil on structural racism and how it impacts individuals. You know, we've seen these individual stories that are so amazingly painful, but also compelling. And the relationship 
that the structural racism has on a whole set of people in our country, I don't think we can go backwards after that. I think it's in everybody's heads. It may play out in negative ways politically, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's certainly a possibility, but I don't see complacency as, as the fallback here. I think there will be strong voices and we may not disagree with all the voices, but this is something that uh, we're not going to move away from in, in my, in my view. And I, and I hope we don't. Right. What role does philanthropy play in making sure our recovery from COVID-19 is more equitable? And if so, what does that look like? Well, I think philanthropy has played kind of an interesting role, both sort of in the short-term emergency relief grants, that we and others have made, but also in the ability to invest in longer term policy thinking. So one of the things that, you know, it's not necessarily COVID, but it is a an equity question is you think about water. And right. in Michigan, of course, you think about Flint. And yep. in Flint, we have an opportunity from philanthropy's point of view to make a whole bunch of emergency grants to help the people in Flint get bottled water and so on, you know, there's a huge effort there that I think people really rallied around. There is also the really significant policy issues that were brought to the fore, thinking about who's not getting clean water and why. And it it leads to a whole bunch of bigger picture policy questions. Also underlying the experience in Flint, it's both a particular thing that has to do with Flint, but it's also a bigger lesson, is that the people in Flint lost confidence in their leadership. They lost confidence in the governor. They lost confidence in the decision makers. There was a loss of trust there that is really important to understand. Philanthropy can play a role by investing in, as we have and others have, investing in organizations that are allowing residents of Flint and enabling residents of Flint to participate more directly in figuring out both what the problems are and what the solutions are for their particular issues in Flint. But I think it's important to generalize from that experience that trust in our institutions is fragile and it's easily frayed. And once you break that, rebuilding it is extremely difficult. That has implications you know, across the board, policing, law enforcement, criminal justice systems, education. And when people don't believe that the leadership is acting in their interests, you you fray our democracy. Right. It undermines everything, basically. Yeah. It's something that really is is on my mind. And, and I, you know, I know a lot of other folks are thinking about that as well. Across the region, gun violence is on the rise in our cities in dramatic fashion. Gun violence prevention, particularly research in its tragic causes, has been a signature issue for Joyce for a quarter century. Where does work need to be done both here in Michigan and elsewhere across the region? I, I think one thing that's really important to understand is how little we know about the causes and patterns of gun violence. We know because our foundation and others have invested to some extent, as much as we could afford in research to understand some basic things. This is gonna sound obvious. The more guns there are, the more gun violence there is. States and cities that have higher rates of ownership of firearms have higher rates of suicide, accidental death, and homicide. 
One thing that most people do not know or understand about gun issues is that suicides are two thirds of gun deaths in the United States. And that's been a steady number for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And yet there's very little research and understanding of how you can you know, have a positive impact on, on that trend. One thing that you know, needs to be done, there needs to be considerably more research on what the causes are and what sort of interventions actually are successful. Now, we're quite encouraged that the federal government put, I think, $25 million into research last year. That was a big deal. And I noticed that Rachel Walensky, who's the head of the CDC recently, has said that she believes that the CDC should and could spend more money on research. So, you know, if that were to happen, I would be very happy to be a very small player in what could be a very, very big commitment to to gun violence. I also want to mention one thing that's prominent in certain cities, and I don't know about our listeners today, but there's a movement toward community-based violence interruption. Uh, That's a, a set of strategies. They're not all the same. They're different types of community-based violence interruption. But basically what they focus on is street level intervening in beefs and trying to you know, de-escalate the beefs into things that can be resolved. There's also strategies around cognitive behavioral therapy for mostly young men who are identified as highly likely to shoot or be shot combined with employment And those strategies, which are uh, growing in popularity and frequency, are happening all around the country right now. We're very proud to be part of a White House effort to both evaluate those efforts and try to figure out which ones are having an effect, and if so, why. Another area where the foundation is expanding its work is in justice reform. It's a new area for the Joyce Foundation. It's not a new area um, for people who, you know, many people have devoted their lives to thinking about how to change the justice system so that it's just for all and not contributing to the cycles of, of violence, which, you know, many people believe and I believe that it does. So there's sentencing issues, who's incarcerated for how long, how do people reenter society from the prison system? The Michigan Justice Fund is one of our newer grantees, and they're an organization that uh, we really feel has a lot of potential to help reduce the flow of people into the criminal justice system, which uh, once, you know, once people get into that system, it's very hard to successfully get yourself out of it. So even as we've seen more of a spotlight on the issues of racial equity, we continue to see steps backwards. Most notably, we are seeing uh, intense debate around the rise of legislation that curbs voting rights. What does the Joyce Foundation view that and, and how is it addressing that? Well, let me again start off with some positives. There's recent polling in Michigan that suggests that most people trust the electoral process. They believe in it for all the noise that's going on around elections. Right. Most people believe that voting is both a duty and a right, and it makes them feel empowered to have the opportunity to vote themselves. But they also feel that everyone should have that chance. So most people are not interested in reducing the opportunities to vote. 
a very interesting thing in some recent polling that I've seen, in addition to not wanting people to be disenfranchised and really kind of not liking to see long lines and so on, the polling I've seen is that people love absentee voting. Absentee mm. voting, you know, has become this politicized thing, but people like to be able to vote absentee. So I think it's important to listen to what your people want and like about democracy in the state of Michigan. I also think that Michigan has made some great advances. For example, in 2018, a huge majority of Michigan voters approved two ballot issues to put power back in the hands of voters. Mm -hmm. One is the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, which may have sent a little chill down the spines of um, other people who would like to control the, the redistricting process, but also the voter access reforms, which include allowing any registered voter to vote absentee, again, hugely popular, as well as some you know, other pieces of the package. Our belief is that we should invest in helping these processes succeed. We should not be trying to undermine them. So Promote the Vote is a group that we think highly of in, Mich in the state of Michigan. It's a coalition of voting rights groups that led that ballot campaign. And let me just mention that we do not support ballot campaigns because that's considered electoral activity, which we're prohibited from doing. But mm -hmm. we can fund organizations that are working on some of these issues. So Promote the Vote is another group that we're really happy to be supporting right now along these lines. So we'll see what happens in Michigan. I know there's been some new legislation introduced recently that would actually prohibit philanthropy from engaging in any of these issues. I sort of thought maybe that meant we were doing pretty well. One focus here at the conference is accelerating the COVID-19 economic recovery and assuring that's sustainable. Uh, there has been and continues to be significant federal economic stimulus flowing into state and local coffers. How do we ensure a fair and sustainable recovery in Michigan and across the Great Lakes region? And are there pitfalls to be avoided here? There's a whole bunch of questions sort of embedded in that question. And let me let me just start by saying there is this flood of money that's already committed. There are subsequent you know waves, as long as we're using the water metaphor, waves right. of money that are likely to come in. Some of the money, you know, it comes into the states based on population or some calculation. And some of the money will be competitive. So you'd have to apply for it and compete against other municipalities or other states to get the money. Mm -hmm. What we're really interested in doing is working with a set of probably smaller municipalities around all of the Great Lakes, but certainly in Michigan, to help local mayors and their teams who are going to get this money anyway, understand like, all right, if Mayor Jones, you want to work on water issues and criminal justice reform, you know, let us provide to you what the research says is going to be an effective use of dollars in those areas to help them direct it in the most efficient way possible. For the competitive dollars, there's sort of an art and a science to writing strong applications for federal money. And we're very interested in helping some subset of cities by providing you know, consultants who know how to do that or letting them hire somebody. So what we wanna do is basically help Michigan cities both get as much money as they can out of this flood of money and the money that they get, use it the most efficiently and effective way possible. Then as a subset of that, I would say that poorer communities are even less likely to have 
the ability to you know apply for that extra money and figure out what the best use of it is so our likely set of cities that we work in is going to be focused on the cities that have lower income communities more uh, communities of color and more communities that are at risk another focus here at the conference is investment in the health and wellness of people and communities an important piece of that, of course, is healthy and equitable water for our communities. Obviously, Michigan, particularly Flint, which we've discussed, has been at the center of this issue. Where are we now in the wake of what Flint exposed in respect to clean water issues and specifically as it relates to race and segregation? I think access to clean water, which it's a basic human right, and it's also a building block for healthy communities. And there is no question that access to clean water is not equitably distributed mm -hmm. in our country and certainly in Michigan. You know, again, there's, there's a good story to tell in terms of identifying which communities really are at risk, identifying the issues which are, you know, lead pipes is, you know, certainly one that has a huge impact on low-income communities. But also, you know, there are communities that, that don't even have sufficient wastewater facilities and are flooded in dirty wastewater. During COVID, one of the things that happened that I, I just could not believe was that low-income people in Chicago, remember at the beginning of COVID, it was wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Mm -hmm. People's water was being cut off because they weren't paying their water bills. So think about the knock-on effects of that when yeah. you're in the middle of a health crisis and you don't have running water. What were people supposed to do? How are they supposed to respond to these pronouncements right. from the health experts? So, you know, those are the kinds of issues. You need both sort of a science background, but you need really effective hellraisers on the ground to say, you know, wait just a minute here. This yeah does not make sense, it's not fair, and you can't be further, you know, in, endangering the health of young people who are already most at risk. Right. And that really was happening certainly during COVID. And I think back to your earlier question about, are we gonna go backwards? Are we gonna sink into complacency? Mm -hmm. This is one where I don't think so, because again, the polling on water issues, people understand. You know, anybody who can go into their kitchen and turn on their water and feel comfortable that there's nothing bad in it, there's only good in it, right? understands how it feels for a mother trying to do the same thing somewhere else where she's worried that her water is full of lead. So I don't think we slip back on that problem. We are billions of dollars behind on our water infrastructure, billions and billions. So is the amount of money that's gonna come through the federal government on uh, water infrastructure enough? Probably the answer is no, but we can get a lot further along. Eleanor Crane's forum series, which is supported in part by the Joyce Foundation, has focused on making sure the Great Lakes remain a safe and vital resource for our region. The lakes continue to face enormous challenges from pollution to climate change. What region-wide approach needs to happen for these issues to be addressed immediately in a bigger way? We know it can't be every city, you know, uh, on their own. It has to be a region-wide process to make that work. 
Well, there are two region-wide sort of regulatory systems already in place. And Joyce Foundation was very involved in setting them both up. One is an agreement amongst all of the Great Lakes states and the Canadian provinces that border the Great Lakes states. There's an agreement on water withdrawals. And as we have climate change going forward, you can imagine and you hear people talking about, you know, let's drive some trucks up from Arizona and see if we can put a giant straw in Lake Michigan and take it back down so we can build more golf courses or whatever. <laughs> right. um, that's illegal. And there's a whole legal infrastructure around controlling the water in the Great Lakes so that it remains in the Great Lakes and serving the uh, millions and millions of people who rely on it. So that's one thing that I think is really interesting and important. And it's the, the history of that is an interesting one. I'll quickly just say that it required every state legislature to sign off on it. Every governor had to sign off on it. The provincial leaders in Canada had to sign off on it then had to go to Congress. Congress had to sign off on it, and the president had to sign off on it. I can assure you that was a bipartisan effort when that was accomplished. So the second thing that's important and is a positive thing is the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. It was put in place, uh, I'm going to say 2009 or 2010, but it's about 400 to $500 million a year on Great Lakes restoration priorities. And it has had a huge impact on some of the issues you just laid out on pollution and climate change. And, you know, different lakes have different challenges, but, you know, maintaining the health and viability of the lakes and figuring out the specific projects that need to be done. And it's been re-upped every year by Congress. And I'll tell you one more good thing, and then we can go to the bad things. There's something called an area of concern, which is essentially like a hugely polluted section of, of the lake. And when I started working on this issue, there were 26 areas of concern, and none of them had been cleaned up, and none of them were cleaned up for about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years. And just more recently, six of these areas of concern have been completely cleaned up. It's slow progress, but it's really exciting progress. And we see you know, this continued funding of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative as part of that. I wanna give a shout out to the Weggie Foundation. Weggie is based in Michigan, uh, in Grand Rapids, and they were a key part of the Healing Our Waters Coalition, which has been like, you know, a very effective and possibly annoying to some elected officials, but um, you know, very persistent advocate on Great Lakes issues. And, and we worked very closely with them, took their lead over and over. So climate change on the lakes. Um, many people may have seen the New York Times did a front page story on climate change in the Great Lakes, which I thought was ironic because the next day the New York City subways flooded. So, right. you know, <laughs> but anyway, they wrote about that too. But, you know, the, the thing that puzzles people is like, well, wait a minute, is there too much water? We're getting flooded. Is there not enough water? What, what, is, what is going on here? The science is pretty definitive, I think. What you're going to see in the Great Lakes is huge swings closer together. So we'll have big increases in water that are, you know, wiping out homes along the borders of the lake. And then you'll have droughts and they'll be more extreme and they'll happen more closely together. 
our lakes and our and our water play a central role in the region's environmental health and our economic vitality and even our identity. We need to work together in the state house, in mayor's offices, in Washington. It's the only way we're going to preserve what we have and assure that we recover from the pandemic and all the underlying problems that were exposed. Getting things like that right is the best way to reimagine a healthy region and a healthy Michigan. Well, that's a great way to uh, end this discussion. So Ellen Alberding, thank you so much for the conversation. Ellen is president of the Joyce Foundation and we were discussing today's top issues at the Michigan Policy Conference here. So thanks very much, Ellen. Thank you so much, Jim. It's an honor to be here.